Hello, and welcome back to the fourth and final session in my summer session series where we are replaying some highlight sections of interviews I've done over the past couple of years. Today, I am very excited to share a clip from my interview with the illustrious Dory Clark. Dory Clark talks about so many things in this episode. Oh, it was such a great interview. If you enjoy this, you really should go back and listen to the whole thing. She just drops golden nugget after golden nugget. But today, I want to replay a section uh, where we talked about playing the long game and being really intentional about how you build your platform. I think a lot of times when we look at people like Dory Clark with her online presence and so much credibility and authority, we don't really fully understand the intention that she put behind building this, but it was all very well planned out. And what's exciting about hearing this from someone like her, and, and I've had this a similar experience, is it just means that you can absolutely do it too. That's what I love about this. Yes, there's a lot that she's done. I've done a lot of similar things, and it, it does take time, but the results, I think, are guaranteed because most people can't stick with it. Most people can't play the long game. So buckle up, enjoy the episode. You're listening to the No BS Agency Podcast. We talk strategies that can take your one to two person branding agency from $5,000 to $30,000 per month without hiring employees or working your ass off. All you have to do is cut the BS. I am Pia Silva. Let me tell you, I know you haven't written for Forbes, for your Forbes column in a while. Right. I wrote for Forbes from 2011 to 2015. Okay. Well, I, on more than one occasion, I've Googled a question and your Forbes article has come up as the first thing, including when I was getting ready for my TED Talk. I was like, I don't know, I was, you know, just starting. What do I wear in a TED Talk or what should I talk about or something? And you had like four articles that came up and your TED Talk. I was like, of course, Dory's articles are coming up because she has just been, she has written about everything related to what I'm doing. So your your content comes up so much. And I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but this is what I was thinking when I was thinking the long game. It's like you wrote those articles so long ago, but they are still so relevant and they're still coming up and getting people to know about you and sending them to your website. And and it's a snowball effect. It's been my experience. And it's that first few years that doesn't not, nothing happens in the first few years. But then but then it's the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, these are articles that you wrote five, six, seven years ago that I'm finding and would bring me to you if I didn't already know you. So did you have that foresight? Did you know, like, content wasn't even a thing when you started writing content? That wasn't even a word in the vernacular, I don't think. <laughs> um, where did that come from? Have you just always been a writer? Or did you have that long game plan? It actually was a specific strategy that I was it following. Was. Okay. Um, yes, at first, I was... I'm glad uh, to, to hear be- that. I feel like everyone says like, oh, I didn't know. And all of a sudden, no, I'm glad that you knew what you Thank were doing. Thank you. Well, yeah. to be to be fair, in the <laughs> earliest days, I was kind of like dragooned into it. But then at a certain point, I realized that it could be something and I made a strategic choice. So 
early on, what I what I really wanted to do was write a book. And so in 2009, I was like, this is the year. And so I but I did not know anything about how to write a book. And so I, what I did know is that you write a proposal, and then you get an agent, and then the agent sells the book. That is that is theoretically how that works. What I did not understand is that the days of just like writing a proposal and being able to sell it just kind of based on the idea are long gone uh, because what you what you really need to have in order to sell a book to a mainstream publisher is a so-called platform. You need to be reasonably well known. Otherwise, they're just like, you know, who are you? Get out of here. Right. <laughs> so uh, so I wrote three, three different book proposals in the first half of 2009, all of which were just, you know, after greater or lesser periods of consideration, summarily dismissed by everyone like, you seem nice, but you're not famous. So anyway, I, I was essentially sent back to the drawing board. My agent dropped me and I was just like, oh, okay, I have to, I guess I have to like build my platform. And I was very bitter that I had to do it because, you know, when you want to write a book, you want to write a book. But I was like, fine. So I started deciding that I needed to to write things in order to to do this. So I began really aggressively pursuing places that I could write. So I ended up first uh, doing stuff for the Huffington Post, which was kind of a thing back then, and then for HBR, and then ultimately for Forbes. Uh, so I had developed the stable of places that I was writing for. And in fact, it did work, yay. Eventually, one of my HBR pieces, you know, became the material for my first book. But a couple of years into this, probably around 2012, I realized that what what I needed to do was make a decision in order to level up my business because the a disadvantage that I had started with was that I had I had never and you know still all these years later you know I have not uh, I had not ever worked in a corporate job and so like a lot of people I mean I'd done stuff I had been a newspaper reporter and I'd worked on campaigns but that's a little different so a lot of people who become consultants part of how they're able to build their practice early on is like okay well if you spent 20 years at McKinsey you know a lot of people you know a lot of executives who can hire you I did not I did not know people who you know who could hire me or at least I knew people who could hire me for things like, hey, will you write a speech for $500? <laughs> but, you know, you have to do a lot of that in order to make a living. And so I decided that I needed to meet new people and I needed to essentially level up who I was known by. And so that entailed making a strategic decision to drop uh, a certain percentage of the work that I was doing, which did, in fact, decrease my income by quite a bit, and reallocate that time toward platform building, brand building. And uh, so during this period w where it was most intense from about 2012 to 2015, I was, for different publications, I was writing a minimum of 10 blogs a month, sometimes up to 15. Uh, so I, it was really like a, a, a large percentage of my time uh, just trying to kind of build build the snowball, as it were. Can I ask logistically for a second, because that sounds like you were writing 50 articles a month. 15, one five. 15. Oh, I thought but for multiple platforms. Or oh, in yeah. total. So, so for, for, for multiple, for, you know, for, in, in total, but it was, it in was total. sort of spread out gotcha. across things. So for oh, okay. Forbes, I signed a contract with them that I would do a minimum of five per month. 
But, you know, for, for many of those months, I would do like 10 for them. I'd do one or two for Harvard Business Review. I'd do one or two for Huffington Post. Occasionally, I'd do things for just like other random things I was writing for, you know, stuff I don't really write for now. But there was a site, a business site called Bnet. I wrote for them for a while. I, I wrote for Amex Open Forum, you know, like all the things. Right. Okay. Gotcha. So quantity is definitely part of the strategy, but of course you also want quality. And were you, logistically, were you writing from beginning to end? Did you have an editor? Did you have like any help? Or were you doing this completely on your own? Plus, of course, doing, I would assume, consulting to actually make a living and support yourself. Yeah, there was that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I, I I was doing it all on my own. You know, I mean, some people might say that I had uh, an unfair advantage in that I had previously been been a journalist. I had, I mean, not for long, honestly, I'd been a journalist for a year, and then mm-hmm. I got laid off. But I did, I did have that training. But I think in some ways, it's it's honestly like less about journalism training, and more about just understanding the fundamental truth that you learn as a journalist is you cannot afford to dilly dally, you just cannot. And it needs to be, you know, yes, it needs to be accurate. But it's just about being good enough. It's like, okay, is it accurate? Is it good enough? Great. Let's get it out there. I think that, you know, for for the vast majority, I mean, I'm going to say like nine, 95% of people who are college-educated professionals, you can write an article, pro- you know, probably just as well as I can, you know? But I think the problem is that a lot of people have a mental block about, oh, well, articles take like eight hours to write. No, they fucking don't. Like, you can write an article <laughs> in like an hour. You really can. You just need to believe that you can. And yeah. and there's, you know, you systematize it after a while. Um, but you, you can learn to be really quite efficient at it. Well, and that takes practice and letting go of perfectionism. Would you wouldn't you say? I mean, I think part of what I watch people that I coach struggle with is they just it's never good enough. And I think that that's just kind of standing in their way of pressing publish because they think that there's some holy grail that this article is going to be. And they're very precious about it as opposed to, you know, if you want like when I tell people when they say, well, I just need an article to go viral. It's like you get viral by creating lots of stuff. You can't really anticipate what's going to go viral. You can have some ideas, but you really just have to create lots of things. And I feel like you've done that and have had lots of hits because you've just created so much content. Uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I agree with you for sure. Like, obviously, if we could predict what would go viral, like, why would we do anything else? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so it, I, I'm a firm believer that it is 100% about focusing on the number of at-bats. Yeah, cool. Okay, so you had this strategic idea to create, b- build your brand by going to lots of platforms, and that did snowball on itself. Would you say that you you said that one of the articles was ended up being the basis of your book. Would you say that doing all of these articles also kind of prepared you to write that book? I mean, aren't my experience was just writing lots of stuff made it easier to write the book after. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for sure. I think that writing I mean, you know, writing writing a book is both similar and dissimilar to writing articles. The biggest thing is, uh, in terms of what I feel the difference to be, is writing an article, you know, you you really can sort of bang it out in one discrete session and like, okay, yay, it's done. There we go. Writing a book is a little bit harder because you, you really have to sustain this narrative flow and like, okay, this thing that I wrote today, does it fit with 
you know, what came before that I wrote yesterday? And how do I lay it up so that it makes sense with the thing that I'm going to write tomorrow? And it's it's just a little harder to keep the totality of it in your mind uh, at once so that so that a reader is actually perceiving it as this bigger concept that that makes sense. But, you know, that's not that's not in any way insurmountable. Sure. I was very fortunate that one of my early articles for Harvard Business Review was able, I wouldn't say it went viral, but it did catch the eye of the scene, you know, the the lead editor, the editor in chief of the Harvard Business Review. And she saw that. And the, I mean, these things are luck too. There was a situation a couple of months later, where what I think happened was that somebody somebody had promised them an article and was late on it, or there was a problem with it or something like that. So they had a very sudden news hole that they needed to fill like really fast. And so the editor in chief went to um, the editor that I had been working with and was like, hey, what about that article about reinvention? Can you talk to her? Can you get her to do a longer piece about it? And so actually it was it was like immensely satisfying because at the time HBR they don't really anymore but at the time they had like a sort of regular stable of contributors and so this editor had been kind of impressed with some of my early stuff and had said to me like oh hey maybe we can make you one of the regular contributors and i was like really pumped about that but then you know the problem was HBR has a very specific style. It's like a house style, which I've now spent a lot of time learning and analyzing and understanding. But early on, I didn't. It was a little bit more hit or miss. And so, you know, I submitted some other stuff and he didn't like it. And so then he was just like, uh, well, maybe not. And I was so disappointed. And I was just feeling like, oh, okay, I guess that didn't work out. And then all of a sudden his boss comes to him and is like, go get that girl. And so he had to like come kind of like crawling back to me and be like, oh, hey, will you write an article for us? That's uh, satisfying. It was very satisfying, (laughs) yes. Well, actually, can I ask you a little more about how, because I know that my listeners, like they all, everybody asks me, how did you get your Forbes column? And can you introduce me? You know, I'm like, well, can I see your blog? And they say, I don't have one. I'm like, well, that's step one. (laughs) Um, But that was step one for me. I'm curious what your step one was. Like you said, oh, I realized that I needed a platform. So I went and started writing for all these publications. And I think everyone's listening going, yeah, if I could write for publications, I would do that. But I don't know how to. What's your recommendation? Or how did you do that? Yeah, well, you are you are exactly right, of course, Pia, that the most important thing if somebody uh, like an editor is going to take a chance on you is uh, they cannot just trust (laughs) that you will write well, they want to see that you can write well. So you do need to have um, samples, writing samples, the 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 old, the old, uh, old school OG term for it is clips. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah, you used to clip them from the newspaper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. taking it back. That was the thing. Uh, so anyway, your clips. But these days, your clips. Um, I I had a blog on my website. You know, back you know now you like two thousand ten. I yeah. did. Nowadays, what I think is probably an easier option for people is just like write some articles on LinkedIn, write some articles on Medium. Those are you know or Thrive Global. Those are sites that are accessible to anybody, and it gives you an opportunity to say like, hey, here's what I can do. Here's some samples. And so when you have that, it gives you something to show people. And then it really becomes a question of networking your way 
up to higher profile publications. I I I have thought so deeply about this. I even I even have an online course I run about this called Writing for High Profile Publications. So there's lots to say, but you can approach people cold. Um, in fact, I got my Forbes column uh, pitching cold. But you know the caveat is that in order to do that, I mean, number one, you need the clips to show people, and you need to really have what I what I call a social proof laden bio to be able to give to the people because you know they they want to know that you're credible like nobody wants to take a chance on somebody that can be a wacko and so you, social proof is like what are the markers of credibility that you can demonstrate so that without a shadow of a doubt within a paragraph you can convince someone wow this person is an expert they know exactly what they're talking about i mean what you want is to be able to say okay well you know i i'm a you know a, a whatever whatever my clients include boom 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 things they've heard of my work has previously been featured in boom 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 publications that they know of i've guest lectured at boom 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 and it's like top universities like you know or or whatever your version of that is maybe it's awards you've won maybe it's professional associates you're involved in, you know, what, whatever. Um, but it's, it's thinking about, you know, how do you sort of amass that? Obviously, the ideal situation, which makes it easier rather than going in cold, is if you have a friend that can introduce you to the editor. So, you know, that requires some finessing. With the Huffington Post, it was such a fakakta process that I literally had to reach out to six different colleagues who wrote for Huffington Post to ask them because it wasn't that they didn't want to, it was that they literally didn't even understand how to, like the system was so convoluted, they didn't understand who to who to introduce me to. But finally somebody did and I was able to get in. But you you really have to pursue it a lot. Like I, I hear from a lot of people, they're like, oh, I tried a thing and it didn't work. It's like, okay, you need to find like 20 ways to try the thing because it would be really, really the exception for the first one to work. That is so important. And I think I should make that a clip and re and replay it on my own social media for everybody over and over and over again. So many people, I think, like, why do people not know that, right? Like, I, I find so many people think, well, I tried it once, it didn't work. Like, hands up. I, I guess I have to try something else as opposed because they don't necessarily. There's like the famous story of J.K. Rowling, you know, yeah. getting rejected by, I think, 29. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And then she and then she writes Harry Potter. It's like that's not the exception. That's that's how it works. There's just a lot going on. There's a lot of other people who are very impressive and possibly more impressive. So you have to do a lot of things in order to be seen. And there's it, the stars have to align. Um, I had a similar thing. I knew at least five people who worked for Forbes. And the reason I got it was because my friend rec introduced me. And it was because I had been writing and she had been reading my newsletter for years. So when he asked her, uh, hey, do you know anyone who could write about small business branding? She was like, oh, my friend, like my good friend could write about that. So yes. it was it was serend it was it seems serendipitous. It seems like who, you know, but actually she wouldn't have recommended me if she hadn't been getting my newsletter and my and my blog for two years. So amen. That's yep. a long game. That's a long game. <laughs> yes, it is. That's right. I think I think that's so spot on, Pia, and I agree. I think there 
you know, unfortunately, there's a, there's a lot of people who, yes, you're exactly right, say, oh, but I don't have a blah, blah, blah. I haven't done a blah, blah, blah. I guess it's not for me. And I, ju- I just want to, like, shake people by the collar and say, like, oh, is that an immutable state of affairs? Like, <laughs> like absolutely not. Like, the, the, whole, the whole point is if there is, a, if there is some uh, arm of credibility that you don't possess, go get it. Because you can go get it. You can get everything. There is there is nothing that drives me bonkers more than people who, you know, have this sort of passive fixed mentality about, well, I didn't go to an Ivy League school, therefore, blah, 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 blah. The first thing you learn living in Boston, I lived in Boston for 17 years, no one gives a fuck if you went to Harvard. Literally no one, because everyone went to Harvard. No one cares. It is the least important, notable thing. It does not matter. What, what matters is that we are strategic in how we think about deploying and obtaining the credibility that we need so that in a busy world at a glance, people can see that we know what we're talking about. Because it would be nice if everyone took the time to like independently assess and evaluate, uh, you know, oh, what are, you know, really, do you know what you're talking about? But like, they're never going to do it with a stranger because people are just too busy. And so, uh, you know, just as one example, I now have been teaching for uh, for Duke, for the Fuqua School of Business, for about eight years. And that is something that has become, in, you know, in some ways, kind of a pillar of my credibility. That was, that was certainly not like some kind of foregone conclusion. I don't have an MBA. I don't have a PhD. Literally in college, I never took a business class. My university didn't offer them. It was a liberal arts school. What so, do you teach? Yeah. I teach um, leadership communications at, uh, at Duke. And the way that I got that was actually a, a very, very concerted strategy where I spent close to a year uh, pers- actively pursuing academic affiliations because I knew that that was going to be the next critical trigger in terms of building my credibility. And so I did everything from talking to uh, to friends and getting recommendations, you know, getting connections and referrals to also, you know, with greater or lesser success, you know, basically cold calling people and, you know, cold emailing them and, you know, volunteering to speak, connecting with them, whatever. I literally did this for dozens of universities, reaching out and, you know, cold and, looking up who the department chair was and sending them an offer and like, oh, hey, do you need a guest speaker? I can come guest speak and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And reaching out to their executive ed departments and offering to do stuff. My first in uh, was, you know, you always go for the low-hanging fruit, was with my own college, uh, which had an executive ed arm. And they were, I think, mostly willing to listen to me because I was an alumna. And so, you know, I think they just felt like it would be impolite not to at least talk to me. (laughs) They owe you that much. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, so I was able to kind of talk my way in there. And then like once you get the first toehold, it becomes a lot easier to pitch yourself to other places. But yeah, the the Duke connection came from a colleague that I had worked on a political campaign with over a decade before. And she had gone on to get her MBA at Duke. And she connected me first with the admissions director who she knew, which was like obviously not the right person, but that person was like nice and connected me with the right person. And so, you know, I managed to have a conversation with them and it turned out that they were, yay, they were looking, they were basically looking for exactly what I was teaching uh, or what I was able to teach at the time that I was offering it. So that was very lucky, but what made it you know, what made it possible, what made the luck possible was that I had 
probably contacted 50 other schools over the past year. And, you know, they had like mostly dissed me. So one one thing broke, which was lucky, but uh, there there was a lot under the surface. Um, but I pursued that very aggressively because I knew that what I needed was an academic affiliation to kind of hang my hat on to establish that credibility. Wow. I am so thankful that you just broke that down because listening to all of the ways that you pursued this very clear, very clear goal with all of these different strategies, knowing that they weren't all going to work, most of them weren't going to work. Anybody listening to that should see like, well, of course, Dory Clark is Dory Clark. Like, listen to what she's doing <laughs> to get all of these accolades. I mean, that's that's what's important for people to hear. I think that that's the story that a lot of people don't hear. And then we fill in the gaps of how these things happened. Hey, guys, if you love this podcast, if you love this episode, I would be grateful if you would share it with a friend who would benefit or better yet on Instagram in your stories and tag me at Pia Loves Your Biz. It really is the best way for others to find out about the show. And I thank you in advance for your help. The No BS Agency podcast is produced by Yellow House Media. Coordinator is Lou Blazer. This episode is edited by Marty Seafelt. Creative direction by Sean and Tara McMullen. Our theme music is Knock 'em Down by The Shrugs. 